Good morning. We will continue today in our study of the uh, disciple and then apostle, Peter. Uh, we will change a little bit. If you remember, for the last few weeks, we talked about Peter as a disciple and the different aspects of discipleship that we saw or different stages of discipleship we saw the apostle Peter go through, or the disciple Simon Peter. Today I'd like us to look at Peter in a different light as a shepherd, as a shepherd. So turn with me, please, to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, passage we've read before, and I'll, I'll read one verse and then fragments of other verses. So John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He, that is Simon, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And we know this uh, repeats two more times. And in verse 16, Jesus says, tend my sheep. In verse 17, Jesus says, feed my sheep. I like reading uh, a children's Bible to my daughters every night when we can. And uh, it uh, simplifies things quite a bit. For every book of the Bible, it'll have maybe a few paragraphs. And uh, about the book of Psalm, it... It had a paragraph about Psalm 23, which I think many of you could probably quote. It's, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It talks about the Lord as our shepherd and uh, we as his sheep. And uh, there's a little picture on the side, and it says, uh, I asked my daughters, who are these sheep? And they said, well, they're David's sheep. And it's true, there's a little picture of David there as a shepherd boy. And I said, well, who are the Lord's sheep? And they said, we are. And uh, that's... That's what we want to think about today. The Lord thinks of us as his sheep. And uh, people often mention that sheep are not the smartest animal. They need a shepherd to take care of them. And so we might not be the smartest uh, creatures that God has made. We need a shepherd to take care of us. It says the angels are much greater than we are. We need a shepherd to take care of us. And the Lord is our shepherd. But the Lord here tells Peter to take care of his sheep, which makes Peter an under-shepherd. And Sometimes if you're a shepherd and you might have a very large flock of sheep, you need help. You can't by yourself shepherd all of them. So you might have a few other guys and you'll tell them, go over here and do this and you go over there and do that. And they help you shepherd the sheep, take care of the sheep. And that's Peter's job. He needs to help the Lord take care of the sheep. And, and we have elders in our midst or people with uh, the gift of, of pastoring. That's their job. They're supposed to help take care of the sheep. That's the, the job that the Lord has for them, the job the Lord has for Peter. And uh, if we want to see how Peter did with this particular job that the Lord has given him to be a shepherd, we would have to turn to First and Second Peter. So that's what we will look at today, the letters that uh, Peter has written to uh, the Christians in his time, really probably near the very end of Peter's life. It seems that Peter was happy simply talking and working with people. He wasn't doing as much uh, letters, lettering or sending letters as Paul did. But as Peter came to the end of his life, he realized he needed to put some things in writing if he wanted future generations to profit. And that's really what Peter is doing here for us. Uh, just to uh, make sure we, we know what's the emphasis of Peter, we're going to go ahead and cheat and go to the end of the book of First Peter, just to make sure we're focused 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to use the word cheat in a negative sense. It's sometimes helpful to know what a book is talking about. What we're doing is legitimate. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So Peter is here concerned about Satan. He's concerned about the devil and what he will do to the believers. And uh, you can tell here that there's suffering being experienced in the world. It's generally believed that this epistle was written shortly after the great persecution of the Christians started in the time of Nero. You may have heard the story about Nero, the perhaps uh, not the best emperor Rome ever had. He decided to burn the city of Rome. And when he realized he's about to take some flack for that, he decided to blame the Christians instead. And that really started the great persecution that the Christians started suffering at that time. And, and we suffer today, too. We have different ways in which we suffer. It may not be persecution, but it, we may have sicknesses or other things that afflict us. And this, thing, this suffering come into our lives, and they're being used in the same way here uh, by the devil, it says, uh, in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. The devil roaring isn't so much interested in killing me personally. Uh, he knows I'm going to die anyways. That's not what he's interested in. What he's interested in is doing the same thing he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, is break my relationship with God. That's his focus. And he uses, he used at that particular time, uh, Nero and, and the Romans and the persecution to try to attack the faith of the believers. And he'll be using things in our lives today to try to attack our faith in the Lord. And that's a concern that Peter had. And uh, the, main, the main point that Peter will be making in this epistle is trying to make us understand that these trials are not bad. God uses them for our good. Uh, and just to quote here, uh, we looked at it. It's good. We've reviewed Peter's life, and we know Peter can relate to us because he experienced the same can anyone tell me what was the greatest trial that Peter experienced? Right, when he rejected Christ. And the whole thing actually started, we didn't read it at the time, we spent a whole week talking about the rejection, uh, Peter rejecting Christ or falling, so to speak. Uh, it actually started with this, though we didn't read it at the time. Uh, I'll just read it. In, uh, in Luke it said, Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It shows us another aspect of what was going on behind the scene. Well, yes, Peter stumbled and he denied the Lord. And yet Satan was there behind. And he had his schemes and what he wanted to do in trying to break Peter's faith in the Lord. Break the relationship that Peter had with the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, he asked for you, but I said no. Peter said, Jesus tells Peter, I prayed for your faith that it will not fail. God allows Satan to bring trials into our lives because he has a purpose in it. And as we looked at that week at the life of Peter, we saw Peter actually got a lot out of it. His pride was broken. He stopped looking to himself and he started looking to the Lord. And then we spent all of last week looking at all the wonderful things that God was able to do with Peter afterward. So there was a lot of benefit for Peter in the trial that he experienced. 
And that's why Peter can turn to us and say, Brothers, I know you're going through suffering. I know you're going through hard times. But I'd like you to see it from God's perspective. Okay, God is doing good things in our lives uh, through this. Okay, so let's go ahead and start with First Peter in chapter 1. We're not going to hit all, all the verses. Obviously, we don't have time to go through First and Second Peter in one hour. We'll just pick some main verses that uh, talk about suffering. And the particular purpose that Peter has, which is to show us how God uses sufferings for good things. God can actually see good things coming through sufferings or trials. So first Peter, we'll start in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if needs be, you've been grieved by various trials. There it is. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, Peter uses or refers to gold here as an illustration. If you were to go to the mountains and uh, dig for gold, at the end of the day you'll come with something that looks like a pound of dirt. But you'll know what to do with it. You'll burn it up, put it in an oven, a place that will literally melt all the elements, And what will happen is because of the difference in the density of gold, it's going to go to the bottom. Everything else is going to go to the top. And at the end of the process, you'll end up with a chunk of gold. You'll be able to appreciate. At first, all there was is this dirt. I don't want this. But at the end, there was a nugget of gold inside. And you could actually see the value. And that's how God uses trials in our lives. He uses our trials to bring out the gold of our faith. And uh, the best illustration for that is the most famous trial in the Bible. Anybody tell me what it is? Job, right, the book of Job. And uh, if you remember, it starts, uh, Satan Satan, uh, shows up at the courts of the Lord. I'll just read it for you. Uh, Chapter 1, starting at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So there was Job, He was the most righteous person on the face of the earth. God could see it. God did not need the trial. But God wanted it revealed. He wanted the faith of Job, the righteousness of Job, the love that Job had to God. He wanted it revealed. And uh, that's Satan is the one who is asking here for... And and, um, what, what Satan is pointed out here is saying, the only reason Job loves you is because you're blessing him. Only be, the only reason Job is being righteous, he fears God, is because you keep giving him all these good things. Take away those good things and you'll see, Job doesn't really love you. He'll curse you to your face. So the, the love that Job had for the Lord was real, but it wasn't visible or it was muddled because Job's life was blessed. It's true, the argument that Satan had, maybe Job was just doing it to get something from the Lord. Maybe he didn't truly love the Lord. Well, the Lord allowed that to be seen. The trial that follows, Job starts, Job starts out by losing all his wealth. Then he loses 
his servants. Then he loses his children. They die. Uh, then he loses his health. He, he is afflicted by this serious disease. Finally, it seems like his wife is, is turning against him. And uh, so he loses everything, and yet he stays true to the Lord. He shows what God said about him was true. He really loved the Lord. Now you could tell because he all he was getting was, was bad things, and he still was faithful to God. He was still uh, being righteous. He still feared the Lord. So you could tell what Job had was real. In the same way, our faith becomes manifest when we're in trial. When everything goes well, the sun is shining, uh, my uh, bank account is high, you know, my children are healthy. Everything is going well for me. And I'm saying, well, you know, I love the Lord. Well, no wonder you love the Lord. Look at all the things he's giving you. Well, when the Lord takes these things away and I can still say, I love the Lord, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord, you can see it. There's a reality. And God wants to bring it up. God delights in it and he will really reveal it to the whole world. But the only way he can reveal it to the whole world is by bringing trials into our lives. They show the gold that is in this bowl of dirt that is our life. It brings out the gold, the trial does. Okay, uh, let's look at the next passage in First Peter. This one is in chapter 2, starting at verse 18. says, Servant, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this end you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So in this particular case, he talks about a believer that is in a tough situation. This particular believer was a servant, or perhaps a slave, and he had a master that treated him ill. And uh, the obvious solution, well, I'll just run away. Well, in those days, it was against the law. If this person actually owns you, he bought you, or whatever contract you have, you have to be faithful to that, to that contract. And so this person, it says, out of conscience toward God, wanting to obey God and, and be in the center of God's will, is willing to stay here, stay in that situation and suffer the affliction of his bad master. Uh, and it says this is commendable it, it says in verse 19, this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures gifts suffering wrongfully. Why is it commendable? Well, it shows God how much you love him. We can tell God, God, I love you. Well, it, it was very hard. It you know, took a couple of breaths you know, and moving my lips and saying it. It, does, it doesn't mean much because it was, it was cheap. Okay? It doesn't really have a lot of value in and of itself. But if I'm willing to suffer for God, I'm in this situation, and I want to get away. It's interesting. Uh, the next passage talks about women being submissive to their husbands. And that's perhaps a situation that's more relevant today. We don't have masters and slaves. We still have husbands and wives. And uh, you could potentially have, a, in this particular case, an unbelieving husband that might be treating you bad. And yet, 
you know this is where the Lord wants you to stay. You know the Lord wants you to be faithful to your husband, even though your husband's not very nice to you, and you're staying it out of conscience to God. You're willing to suffer for God's sake. You're telling God you love him, not with your lips, by, by willing to stay in the situation where you're actually suffering. Okay? It's interesting. It gives here an example. It says, for to this kind of suffering, in verse 21, you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter was a disciple, and he followed the Lord. And he's giving us the Lord as an example to follow here. This is what the Lord did. The Lord, as he went to the cross, he was going to pay for our sins. He committed himself into the hand of sinners, so to speak. He committed himself to the Lord, to his father. His father allowed sinners to grab a hold of the Son of God and beat him up and torture him. And it says here that he was patient. He stayed in that. He knew this was his father's will for him. So he stayed under that situation. And in John 14, 30 and 31, Jesus said, The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Jesus stayed on the cross. He stayed in that situation where he was suffering because he loved the Father. And he expecting the same thing from us. He wants us to do the same thing, to be willing to suffer out of love for God. Stay where God wants you to be even if it means suffering, because it's a way of showing God love. Really, trials are an opportunity to show God how much we love Him. Uh, let's look at the next passage. This is chapter... This is chapter 3, and starting in verse 14. First Peter 3, starting in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of the threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. So this is the third reason of uh, or third advantage or opportunity we have in suffering. Here, it, the opportunity is that of a testimony. So you could, su- if you're suffering, uh, the natural response is to be troubled and get upset. This is the human natural response. But Jesus said this. Jesus said, Peace I live with you, my peace. I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus gave us his peace so we could be different in this situation. Doesn't mean we're always different, but we can be. Because of the peace that Jesus gave to us, I can be in a a situation of trouble and yet not be troubled. And this is not the peace that the world has. The peace that the world has is, you know, I'll give you everything you need, I'll take care of you, you'll be healthy and rich. You can have peace. Well, it's normal. The world, people in the world will have peace when everything is going smoothly in their life. But once tribulations start, people in this world are troubled. You have the opportunity of going through tribulations without being troubled. And it says when that happens, well, people will want to know why. Be ready to give a defense to people for the hope that is in you. You have 
now an opportunity to witness that you wouldn't have otherwise. You can go knock on your neighbor's door and tell them all about Jesus, and they might say, oh, we're not interested. But bad things start happening to you, and they still see you being cheerful in the Lord. They'll say, I want, I want what this guy has. He has something different. Again, a trial gives you an opportunity to actually show people your faith or to have a testimony that means a lot more. The world will see there's a difference. There's something real here. I'm interested in that. Again, there's an example of uh, the Lord Jesus here. Uh, it says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Again, it refers to Jesus here, and he says, He suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is a trial or a suffering we're experiencing for the hope that God will be able to bring other people to him. So here a trial or suffering is really an opportunity for the gospel, opportunity for God to draw more people into his kingdom. All right. Uh, next, we'll look at chapter 4 and verse 12. First Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part... He is glorified. Okay, this is suffering that's, that's called to be partaking up the suffering of Christ. We don't often think about this, but we live in enemy territory, which we would know from the verse we quoted from Jesus before. He said, the ruler of this world is coming. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. We are in enemy territory. Uh, in, in wars, sometimes it's practice. I don't know if it's following the Geneva... Uh, Geneva what is it? convention or not, but uh, they used it in the past, and I'm sure they do it today, they would sometimes send saboteurs. There would be people who would go behind enemy lines. Instead of fighting the enemy face to face, you will send somebody uh, behind the line, and he might go and blow up a factory that makes munition, or find some ways of disrupting the enemy's activities. Well, imagine if you were a saboteur and you were sent over to the other side, and you said, well, you know, you know, if I start blowing up factories, they'll come after me. So, you know, I think I'll be a good citizen. I'll just stay here. I'll work hard. I'll raise a family. And I'll pay my taxes. And they'll never bother me. Well, that's true. But you failed in your job as a saboteur. You didn't do any damage. Well, if you are to do your job as a saboteur, what's going to happen? You're going to catch some flack. You know, they'll start looking. Okay, who is the one who just blew up this factory? And chances, sooner or later, they'll find you. And... You know, do to you what they want to do to you. Well, that's the kind of suffering it's talking about. We live in enemy territory. If I'm going to be doing things for the Lord, what's going to happen? I'm going to suffer. And uh, typically, it's described here as persecution. In this country, we don't have a lot of persecution in the sense of people coming and putting us in jail or, or killing us, as happened in the Roman time. But we're still going to suffer. Uh, it's, it's always interesting to me uh, as I'm preaching, bad things start happening. <laughs> and uh, in my family, sometimes it'll be like a computer. will stop working. 
uh, and I've had that this time around. Uh, this last week, uh, right after the last message, Sunday afternoon, my uh, younger daughter, Nesya, came down with a fever. And uh, we thought, all right, we've had fevers before. And next day, she still had fever. So you use Motrin or Tylenol to try to keep it down. But it kept coming up. And finally, Friday, uh, we took her to the doctor. And the doctor looked in her throat and saw her gland swollen and thought it, it was really something serious. Uh, praise the Lord, it didn't turn out to be what the doctor thought it was. But uh, my wife called me from, from the clinic and told me, it's getting worse. <laughs> and uh, what she meant by that is, yes, bad things happen when I'm preaching. Well, they're getting worse. <laughs> well, what should I do? What should I do? Well, I was encouraged. I was, well, I must be doing what the Lord wants me to do because I'm, I'm catching flack. Okay, so, so this is good. I should, I should stay doing what the Lord is doing. And actually what, what, what uh, Peter is pointing here, this should be an encouragement to us. The fact we're suffering for serving the Lord is an encouragement. It shows we're really doing what we should be doing. Which means, at the end of the day, we can really expect when our side wins, when Christ is revealed, we will share in his glory as well. So, this is an encouragement to us. Uh, next, uh, we're going to look at verse 17. It says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the unrighteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What is this talking about? Judgment has come to the house of God. We talked in the book of Romans uh, today about uh, the wrath of God against unrighteousness. And we talked about how because mankind rejected God, God allowed mankind to fall into all kinds of sin. Uh, well, what happens now that God is bringing us back into his household? What do you think God is concerned with? Well, he's now concerned about the sins that we've fallen into. He's going to work on them. It said in Hebrews... Um, In Hebrews chapter 12, and you have forgot, forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If I go to the park and I see there's lots of kids playing there and one kid is, is being mean to some other kid, you know, I may not be particularly concerned. But if I see that that kid that's being mean to the other kid is my daughter, I become very concerned. And I engage because she needs my help. She's not behaving right. I need to help her. And that's what the encouragement Peter is giving us to hear. The Lord chasing in our life is showing parental care. It shows that God cares about us. We are in his household. And because of it, he wants to work on us. He wants to mold us after the image of his son. He's bringing chastening really for our good to take care of us. It's one of the ways God shows us his love is by chastening us, helping us when we're falling into sin. Okay, uh, the last verse we have in First Peter is uh, or verses we have really following where we started. 
take a little break. In verse, chapter 5 and verse 10, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So first here we have in verse 10 is a comparison or a contrast. We're told that God is calling us into his, what kind of glory? Eternal glory. And right now we're suffering for a while. Okay, so there's a contrast. Right now I might be experiencing some trial, but the trials are of short duration. Whereas the glory that God is concerned with is eternal. So we're suffering a little bit for an eternal benefit. It's a good exchange for us. Uh, in verse 12, Peter is making an interesting uh, point. He's saying, I've written to you briefly, exhorting, testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. I could imagine maybe some of the believers, the young believers at the time, would be kind of surprised by this. Wait a second. You know, I've, I've listened to the gospel. I believe God. I repented of my sin. I've trusted in Jesus. Why are all these bad things happening to me? I must have made a mistake somewhere. I should turn around and go follow my idols back again. And uh, people today have a, a gospel that they preach. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It basically promises you, well, if you believe in Jesus, all these good things will start happening to you. You know, you'll, you'll take care of all your sicknesses. You'll take care of your financial problems. All, you'll, have, you'll have health and you'll have wealth. You can tell these people didn't read the book of Job because it doesn't really fit good with it. Well, the point that Peter's making, no, this is the true grace of God. What you're experiencing now, the suffering, this is the true grace of God. God loves you so much, he's allowing you to go through trials for his eternal glory. What God has promised for us is a lot better than health and wealth, which, by the way, nobody really gets in this world. Eventually, you get old, you get sick, and you'll die. Okay, your, your money, even if you'll have money, it's not going to be able to help you at the end of the day. So really, what God has for us is a lot better than the health and wealth gospel. But it comes to us through suffering in this world. Okay, so much for First Peter. And again, let's remember where Peter is at. He is concerned about Satan, which is described here as the roaring lion, attacking our faith, and he's trying to help us in our faith, and knowing that one of the ways Satan attacks our faith is by bringing trials into our life. He hopes that those will cause us to turn away from God. And what Peter is saying, stay in these trials... God is using it for your good. Reap all the benefits that God is trying to bring you through these trials that he allowed into your life. In Second Peter, we'll see a somewhat different concern. Let's start in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to steer you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. What is 
What is Peter concerned with here? What's the key word that keeps coming up? Sorry? Remind. Very good. He's really concerned about them remembering the truth. He wants to see them established in the truth. At the present, they were, but he was concerned that at some point in the future, they were going to depart from the truth. Okay, and we'll see why as we jump to chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter says, he just finished talking about the value of the word of God. And now he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring, and bring on themselves swift destruction. It's good to remember, Peter is still concerned with the same thing. He's concerned about Satan and the way Satan is going to go after the sheep, right? Because that's Peter's job. He's a shepherd. He's here to protect the sheep. Well, in the previous book, we looked at the approach of Satan of trying to, to take away, get us to turn away from our faith by bringing, bringing trials and suffering into our life. In this book, the concern is with Satan bringing false teacher, teaching lies in order to uh, cause us to turn from the faith or cause us from to turn us from following God. And uh, Peter says here four things about, about false teachers that we can get from that these two verses. First of all, it will happen. It's inevitable. This is one of Satan's big strategies. The Bible says about Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. This is Satan's grand strategy. He lies. It started in the garden. Oh, don't worry about that fruit and what God said. Just eat it. <laughs> You're not going to die. You'll become like gods yourselves. Sounds good, right? And, and the same thing is going to be happening. And Peter knows it's going to happen. False doctrines are going to arise or false teachers are going to come. Uh, and so he's warning the believers about it. The second thing we learn here is they will be bringing, the false teachers are going to bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. What does it mean? Destructive heresies mean uh, false teaching that they were going to do that will, will be destructive. What does it mean that they'll be denying the Lord who bought them? Well, it probably doesn't mean that they're denying that the Lord exists. It probably doesn't mean that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. What it means is that they're denying his lordship. They're not doing the things that he says. Or they're denying his lordships over believers, the need of people to follow him. Uh, Peter describes this to, to, uh, sorry, Jesus describes this to Peter in Matthew chapter 7. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. You can keep your finger in 2 Peter. We'll turn back there. Again. That in Matthew chapter 7, and starting in verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Skip down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we see here those false prophets, and we'll see that they'll be able to, to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? So these are people who thought that they were actually serving the Lord, or at least claimed to be serving the Lord. Yet the Lord tells them to depart based on the fact they didn't do the will of his Father in heaven. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You never followed my law. They didn't recognize the Lordship of Christ. They might have even preached something, oh, you know, say a prayer and believe in Jesus, and, uh, you know, you'll be saved, you're going to heaven. And by the way, you know, next time you open your checkbook, send, send me a check for $100. They're not, they're, that's what it means by them being as ravenous wolf. They really are more interested in what they can get of the believers, as opposed to, like Peter, being a shepherd that really cares about the sheep. But their problem is they, did not, they were not obeying the Lord in their lives, and they didn't teach obedience to the Lord. They said, all you have to do is say a prayer. Don't worry about it. You can then do what you want to do. Okay, that's, we see that happens a lot today. The third thing, if you want to flip back to Second uh, Peter, third thing we can learn from these verses about false teachers is verse 2 in chapter 2, and many will follow in their destructive ways. They'll be successful. Nobody can deny that these false teachers are successful. People are very happy to follow uh, a gospel that says, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say a few words, or I'll do this, or I'll do that, and I'm going to heaven. I can go back home and do the rest of what I do with my life. People follow that. This is, there's a great following of this kind of teaching today. Um, the fourth thing we can learn about it is because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. I'm sure all of you experience it as you try to witness to someone about the Lord, the first thing that typically comes up, oh, well, I know about Christianity. Yeah, I have a Christian in my family. I know what that's like. Really, it's hip- what, what they're referring to typically is hypocrisy. There's, there's uh, uh, somebody they know that calls themselves a Christian, but who hasn't really submitted to the Lord in their lives and is behaving in a way that even unbelievers can tell this is not the way. You know, if there's a way to God, I know that's not it. And that's that's really the purpose of Satan here. It says... Again in verse 2, many will follow in the destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth, the true way to God is blasphemed because of the lie of these false teachers and many people following in their path. And as a result, two things happen. First, those people who came perhaps close to the truth but got turned away by these false prophets or false teachers. The second of all are all the people who see these people that call themselves Christians and say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity blaspheming the truth. There is a way to God, but this is Satan's strategy, to turn people away from that way. And therefore, Peter's concern. Well, what's the solution? What's, this is the danger of false teachers, false teaching. What's the solution? Well, we have that in uh, three forms in chapter 3 of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, and starting in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before, the ho- before by the holy prophets and the com- of the commandments of us, 
the apostles of the Lord and Savior. What he's saying, I want you to remember what the old prophets said. Actually, he doesn't say I want you to, I want you to be mindful of what the prophets of old said. I want you to be mindful of what we have told, told you. All right, well, where are we going to get that? Where are we going, going to find what the old prophets have said and what the apostles said? Right, we have this all right here. So this is really the first solution for false teachers and false teaching is what this book is saying. And it's interesting, it doesn't just say, well, make sure to buy a Bible and have it on the shelf. When someone comes to your door, well, you can open that up and try to look and see if maybe what they say is true or not. He says being mindful. You need to have your mind full of what this book is saying. You need to be thinking about what this book is saying. Everything that comes at you should be going through the filter, really, of what this book is saying. You need to know this thing inside and out. It needs to be really inside you. Okay, that's the first line of defense is the Bible and knowing the Bible, and the Bible really being the guide to our life. The first, the first defense against false teachers. Um, in verse 10 of chapter 3, Peter gives us the second defense, which is really related or might be included in the first defense. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? The second solution is have your mind on eternity. Think about the whole picture. Don't just think about, well, yeah, today I need food, right? Tomorrow I'm going to need food again. Right, the next thing, yeah, I'm going to need food then too. Well, don't be so concerned with what we need now. Look at eternity. All these things will be dissolved. There's nothing in this world that's going to survive what's coming. We should be thinking about eternity. If my mind is occupied with eternity, it's going to resist a lot of the false teaching that happens today. I'm just not going to be interested. I'm sorry, I'm not interested in health and wealth because it's going to be burned up. All, 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 the, all the wealth you can pile up is not going to survive the catastrophe that's coming on this world. Whatever medicine you give me or whatever you do to try to help my body, my body is not going to survive it. I need to be concerned with eternity and eternal things. Uh, then, to close up, uh, Peter gives us really the best advice a shepherd or an under-shepherd can give, can give the flock or a sheep of the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, you, therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Well, growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus... When we're saved, we experience the grace of the Lord. When I'm saved, I come to know the Lord. And yet what Peter is saying, you need to be growing in it. It's not enough to just be saved. Well, I know now who Jesus is. And I, I know his grace. Well, I used to go, be going to hell, and now I'm going to heaven. He wants you to grow in these things. We have a, a real living relationship with the Lord Jesus. And he wants us to get to know him better. He wants us to utilize his grace better. He wants us to appropriate all the things that he has given to us. And that's really 
the best protection we have against the devil. It's drawing close to the Lord. Jesus said that I'm holding my sheep in my hand. and No one can take him out of my hand. And the Father has his hand around my hand and holding my sheep. Nobody, can t- nobody is stronger than my Father can take them out of my Father's hand. The closer we are to the Lord Jesus, the more we are protected from the devil and all the attacks that he might bring against us. So, grow close to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. We know without him we are nothing and can do nothing. We thank you that he has set his eyes upon us, that we were uh, in sin and ungodly and rebellious against him. And he has bought us, Lord, and brought us to himself. Help us, Lord, to do what, what you've urged us to, or you used your servant Peter to urge us to, to first of all, not uh, flee from suffering and trials, but recognize the good that God might have for us in it. And uh, finally, Lord, to draw close to him and let him be our protector. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.